Toy Talk. Fun glasses day. Everybody put on your fun glasses. I love those fun glasses. Thanks. Jay has matching ones. I was going to say, I didn't want to say they look like an infant's sunglasses because Mm -hmm. it sounds like an insult, but I mean it as a compliment. Could have gotten me one, but it's fine. I know. I'm a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) So, hello, everyone. Welcome back to Teacher Quit Talk. Welcome back to the podcast where we podcast about things that we hate. It's been a fucking day, a week, a month, perhaps. Today is one of those days... Where I really looked in the mirror and I said, I do work in the public education system. (laughs) And it made me, one thing that I have a love-hate relationship with is when bad things happen to me and it reminds me of a podcast episode. Yeah. (laughs) Like when stuff happens and I'm like, oh, episode 27. There it is. Wait till they put you on a fucking cart next. <laughs> I was almost carted today, but it wasn't that bad. <laughs> no, not like that. It wasn't like that. But it was, I was attempting to carry too many things because I I was doing standardized testing today. So I was in a different classroom and I was trying to carry too much. And she said, do you want a cart? And I said, nope. No, I don't. No, my pride. I'm okay. If you got one of those Zambonis, <laughs> I will ride that down the hallway. So... You actually gave me the confidence to ask the janitor if I could ride the Zamboni. And every time I ask one of them, they just laugh. But you're so serious. But And then by the <laughs> time I like could explain that, they Zambonied away. Because I always ask them when they're on it. Because I don't want to ask you when you're doing something else. Like, you probably have stuff going on. Oh my God. But when I see them on the Zamboni, I'm like, can I ride the Zamboni? And they're like, ha ha. And I'm like, I'm but can real. I ride the, like, are you taking passengers? <laughs> like You're like, there's a, there's a school that I know about where a 16-year-old gets to ride the Zamboni after school. So one of our... Um, janitors he actually went to the school and i was gonna ask him if when he was in school he saw the zamboni and it inspired him but i felt like he would take that like people would think i meant that condescendingly and i do not i loved my janitors you know what those motherfuckers are the only ones who keep it real sometimes if i need somebody to like really talk shit and like level with me about what's going on in this godforsaken building those are the people i seek out they come in my room and i'm like can you just stay for a minute <laughs> just sit down please just, just come in here but i was really good friends with the janitorial staff at my last school and when i was like pregnant and bursting at the seams the janitors would come in and bring me water and be like be nice to your teacher be nice when i was moving out my husband like shook their hand and was like thank you for taking care of her it's very Tony Soprano of him. Oh my god. I need to leave out some Christmas goodies for them. What a good idea. They've been keeping my shit right when the children keep it wrong, so. Things are going sideways. Christmas break <laughs> is so close. <laughs> and know. they know it. So I think they know it more than I know it. Whatever we're feeling, they also feel. And that is like a recipe for like a concoction of bullshit because everybody's irritated everybody's tired everybody's overworked we are over it done i feel like it is the moment in the the school year where like i've always really gelled with my kids because we are in the trenches together and there is something about like baptism by fire that is (laughs) semi-beautiful and you come back from winter break and you're like oh i missed you you forgot to behave but I missed you. So that is normally how I feel. But I'm in an extremely weird situation right now where because we're on a block schedule, I only have them for a semester. So it's like the horrors 
of the last month of school combined with it getting dark at 4.30 and being cold outside. It's like a very odd vibe because they're really giving me May. They're giving, <laughs> I'm only gonna see you seven more times, girl, but it's December. So I'm really not in a May mode right now, but I think if you can't beat them, join them. So I think I need to get into a May mindset. That appears to be the- Start taking down your classroom. That's what I do in May. <laughs> Wait, that actually might be good. Maybe tomorrow I'll just take yeah. everything down before they come in and just say nothing and see how they react. <laughs> it could be fun. If nothing else, you can make it into like a social experiment and be like, I was just goofing. Like, I'm just going to redecorate over the break. Nothing to do with you. No. I don't even know you. So you all may have noticed because I'm sure the title says something along these lines, but we are going to talk, I think, about standardized testing today. We are. Because those kids are taking them. Let me tell you. They're taking them. You're giving them. I'm not. The kids are being taken by the test more than them taking the test. Oh, my God. They appear to be in a more of a defense mode than an attack mode. The angles that we could go with this are actually endless. No, they really are. We could have a whole podcast where it's just us talking about standardized testing. Yeah. I'm sure that exists. Search it up. So... (laughs) I don't even know where to start. So you're doing... So we're doing EOCs. They're end of course exams. So it's like every state does it a little bit differently. But the way it works in a lot of states, mine included, is like for some specific classes, there's an end of course exam that's created by the state. And it counts for a portion of your grade in that class. So in some states, the end of course, it's like if you don't pass it, you don't graduate. It's a graduation requirement. And then in some states, the end of course is just like a chunk of your grade. So you can fail the exam. But if you did well enough in the course, like they balance each other out. And it's just like a test over a specific topic. So it's really common to have them for a lot of times algebra, biology, and U.S. history. And then usually 10th or 11th grade English is what I see a lot of states do. So the reason we're doing them in December and not May, like most schools do, is because we're on a block schedule. So those courses are only one semester. So So are are these considered high stakes standardized tests? So it depends on the kid. If you're an A student, they're not very high stakes. But if you're a C student, they're very high stakes. Because if like, like I was doing the math with them today, like if you have a 73 in the class, but you fail the exam, it could drop you to a 68 or a 60. That means you failed the class and you have to retake it in summer school or online or some other place or time. Why EOCs in addition to finals? What I've always kind of observed and been told is like a final is a thing that's teacher created or school created like within the class. But an EOC, that's like the state government. So like, I'm sure I could think of a nice little bullshit answer. Like if you were a child where I was like, just so we can see how you're doing, but right. just track you over time. But the reality is they need a way to measure schools and grade them. So, yeah, which is what makes it a high stakes test. Yeah. So these, like when you look up school grades, these test scores are a big portion of that. So they can see, oh, the kids over here did way better than the kids over here. Because the EOCs, every kid in the state is taking the exact same test or like, very similar versions of it. Mm-hmm. I was just looking at a news article and it's from 2014. But like, I feel like it really hasn't changed that much. 
Like, No Child Left Behind was replaced with the Every Student Succeeds Act. It's different, but it's the same (laughs) in a lot of ways. So one thing that, to me, is one of the most annoying parts of standardized testing is how much time it takes. And like, I don't like to waste time. I don't like when people waste my time. I'm sure most kids feel the same way. So I'm always of the opinion that like, we have them in school for like seven hours a day. We should be doing something valuable with that time that increases their learning. And standardized testing, even if you don't think about the preparing, just the action of it takes so much time. Like my school is on a disrupted schedule for six days. That's six days that we're completely out of whack. I'm not saying no learning is happening during that six days, but when you have one class that's 40 minutes and one that's three and a half hours to accommodate the testing, you're just not in your normal routine and stuff's not getting done the way it should be. So to me, that is one of the most annoying parts. And then when I was in Florida, we had the FSA. And that would take like four or five hours once you do like all the security and the checking and all that. So it was really intense. So that would be pretty much an entire day that's wasted. So like when you add up all those days of the year, you're spending so, 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 so much time just in like the logistics of this. Not even if you think about the like the reviewing and the preparation. Absolutely. And that's something that I noticed when I was teaching. When I was in kinder 2019 to 2021, I was at a school that we did NWEA map testing. And that was just supposed to do like an outline for the school year. You're supposed to like use it as a benchmark. They take it three times a year. But it is so time consuming, especially because in the beginning of the year, these kids don't know how to use a Chromebook yet. They don't know how to use a trackpad. They're trying to touch the screen like it's an iPad. You have to read a lot of questions to them. You have to prompt them a lot. It's really, really, really time intensive. And then also we were doing iReady assessments so that we could use that tool at technology time. And that needs to like get calibrated to what they already know. And we would give them in small groups. So you'd have six kids at once sitting at your table just doing the test while everybody else is doing some kind of independent activity, which is like a packet or watch magic school bus or some shit and it's like it just feels so silly and like such a waste of time because we would get through the curriculum itself by april and then may would just be doing the standardized test i found statistics okay amazing. so this is from the education writers association um and they are writing about a study that was done by the center on education policy So, and this is from even pre-COVID times. This is from 2016. So I'm sure things have gotten worse. So um, this is a survey that they did with public school teachers. 81% believe their students spend too much time taking tests that are mandated by their state or district. Um, And this study was done in the Center on Education Policy, which is based at George Washington University. So these are like real people that know what they're doing, not just us. They found that on average, students spend 10 days taking district-mandated tests during the school year and nine days taking state-mandated tests. But underneath those averages are wide variations from less than a week to more than a month. When it comes to test prep, 62% of teachers said they spend too much time readying students for state-mandated exams, and 51% feel that way about district-mandated tests, um, according to a nationally nationally representative study conducted in 2015. They found that on average, teachers spend 14 days 
days preparing students for state mandated exams and 12 days for district mandated exams. And then this is the part that is what I really, really see and rings true to my own experience, that test prep is especially prevalent in high poverty and medium poverty schools. According to the survey, 36% of those teachers spend at least a month on test prep for state mandated exams. By contrast, the figure is 23% in low poverty schools. Holy moly. And I totally forgot about the district test. Yes. A lot of districts do that. Both districts I've worked for have done that. Because I taught a class that had a state test at the end of the year, we had ongoing district assessments throughout the year. My new district is not nearly as intense about it. They're kind of like, take them. They're good practice. And they're like, put it in the grade book if you want. If you don't, like, it's very up to me. My old district, I would really feel like someone was going to hit me if I didn't give all the kids that test because they would have a window and I was supposed to give at least 95% of the kids the test and they would call me every single day to tell me how many of my kids still hadn't taken it. But they would not help me call home for attendance issues. Of course not. <laughs> the district test is what when I worked at a charter school, everybody would cheat on. Not everybody, but a lot yeah. of people cheated on those. It's a lot easier to cheat on the district ones. Oh my God. You would have to like teach with the this district test in your lap and like use the exact same language it was on the test. And then if they didn't get it right, people would like retest and you would just teach them just that and then do it again. I didn't know that when I started there. My data was absolute shit because I was like, oh, well, they didn't know it. So this is what I got on the first try. And I was like, like, you stupid girl. (laughs) You make them know it. (laughs) If you know it, they can know it. Even infants can call and repeat. Yeah, because nobody can say fake your data, but they can say things like, oh, just retest. And I'm like, you're allowed to do that? Okay, how many times are we allowed to do that? (laughs) I remember the first time I got blamed for the kids doing bad on something. I was so taken aback. I was like, (laughs) I was like, what do you, I didn't take it. I told them that stuff. Like, I was so shocked. When I give an assessment, it informs my instruction like, oh, they don't know this. So I'm going to teach it for the next time. But no, (laughs) no. Maybe it's something I should bring up. The blame that we're saying here is not like that. No, it's not that. No, No. it's not where it's like, hey, queen. Let's reflect and grow. No, no. Let's see how we can make this better. No, 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 no. You're responsible for them literally answering that question wrong at all. No, like they will literally look at you. I have had someone look at my face and been like, you got 20 kids in red. You need to get it to less than 10. That's it. No other advice. And I'm like, but I have to teach it. I'm like, unfortunately, (laughs) um, 10 of them are illiterate. I don't know what you would like me to do about that. Are you going to give me time <laughs> to do some small group instruction? Uh, no. You want me to do standardized testing for three days straight? Okay. Well, okay. Uh, so by make them know it, you mean just uh, that you want them to push that button. Okay. One of them literally told me to get more kids out of red, what you can do is the questions that are on the test, you can do them as like a kahoot the day before. Oh my God. Yes. And then she said, and then just go over any that a lot of them missed. I said, all right, I'm I'm all for a good study guide, but that seems a little far to me. And you know what? Sometimes I would also be like, you know what? Just fuck this. And like, I'm just going to do whatever because now we then we can get back to actual instruction. Like the longer yeah. I push back against it, the longer I like say whatever, the more time we're going to spend just teaching to the stupid standardized test. When I just, I don't even want to. I just want to like 
actually do assessments that will inform my instruction and help my kids. None of this bullshit. So it's like maybe I should just put up and shut up sometimes. So the high stakes standardized test that I asked about earlier, I feel like I should say that. So high stakes standardized tests are related to accountability for schools. So these tests are used to hold teachers or students or institutions responsible for their performance and they are like a huge deal in education policy. Like I said earlier, we have seen these by so many different names. We have seen so many different initiatives called so many different things. If it has an acronym, I'm suspicious. The the idea behind them is that test-based accountability can motivate improvement. And it's saying that like, if we align these tests and standardize them, that okay, well, everybody's going to be taking the same thing. So we're judging people against the same marker, which means, you know, we're going to get really good data out of that. But that's like not at all what actually happens. It's one of those things that lawmakers and policymakers will say that sounds really nice on paper because they use a lot of fancy words. But in practice, it's very detrimental to schools, to students, to communities, and that's why we're talking about it. Pick me up. I'm scared. So, so another aspect of this that I hate is I feel like a lot of the standardized tests that we give kids are way, way, way too hard, which we've talked about some before, but this is from NEA, which is, what are they? National Education Association. And they did a survey and found that 70% of educators do not believe the state assessment is developmentally appropriate for their students. And that kind of got my wheels turning. Is it anyone's job to check that? Like, do we, like, do state departments of education is... Like, do they have to hire someone that measures if it's developmentally appropriate? Because that seems like it should be. Because I have felt that way a lot where I look a test and I went to one of the best public schools in the state that I grew up in. And I will look at my student's test and it is harder than anything I did in high school in like high level classes at one of the top public schools. I'm not even going to look up if there's somebody in charge of that because <laughs> what, what <laughs> we've talked about a bit about standardized testing companies. Yes. And they literally make money on it not being developmentally appropriate because they also sell the programs for schools to like help students ace those tests. These big testing companies make money off of the standardized tests not being developmentally appropriate. And they they have lobbyists that and like, go into policymaking. The way that my state does it is I think very common. They hire a company like that to make the test. And then there's one person who works for the state whose job it is to go through the questions and like yes or no them based on the state standards. So like I actually went to a professional development session with that lady. She was great. If you're listening to this, I'm sorry that we're both in this system and I got mad at you, but you were really helpful. She would literally like have to go standard by standard and be like, well, this standard just says explain, but the question that you guys gave me requires analysis. So give me a different question. Like that's her job. And it's crazy to me that we're outsourcing the creation of that to a company. I'm sure it's for financial reasons, like everything. Of course. So in 2015, the four corporations that do all of the standardized tests They fuel a $2 billion testing business. $2 billion a year goes into these tests. 
and that includes these mandated student assessments. They've tallied that the lobbying that these companies do is around $20 million that they pour into. I think I found our education funding because that's literally our money because it's the districts who pay them. So they got that $20 million from us. Yeah, it is a multi-billion dollar industry. We could really be using things like teacher salaries and cost per student and class size and whatever. We could be using all of these things to judge schools and judge students and get meaningful data, but we're not. We're by and large looking to the data that we collect from these standardized tests when it's an industry. It's capitalism. It always is. So this is another statistic that makes me want to throw up, but I absolutely believe, but I'd never really thought about it this way. And it's making me feel bad for yelling at that class today. In a study of the nation's largest urban school districts, they had a list of like a couple major cities, school districts. They found that students took an average of 112 standardized tests between pre-K and 12th grade. A hundred in 12. No wonder my 11th graders are like, girl, we do not care. Right. This is 103. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, because how can, how can you care? Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot in education is no child left behind, which again, a lot of kids got left behind. <laughs> they said no child left behind because all of us are behind. Exactly. If we leave all of them behind, it's fair. Yeah. Right? So again, not a lot of people know this in my comment sections, but the No Child Left Behind was replaced by the Every Student Succeeds Act. So we we had this big reform called No Child Left Behind. It was supposed to like make all these improvements in student performance and reduce inequities and blah, blah, blah. It did not do that. Uh, Shocker. Shocking. (laughs) I know. So, and meanwhile, I mean, we know also, like, there are other types of assessments that are better for students. Like, you can do things like performance tasks or alternative assessments or, like, hands-on things. But but no, no, we're going to do pencil and paper scantrons. And uh, it was a mess. When we look at, like, what we learned from that, the thing that policymakers will tell you is that high-stakes standardized testing is motivating teachers, but it's not. It's, like, scaring the shit out of teachers (laughs) and, like, saying you're going to get fired, you're going to get bad performance reviews, your school's going to get shut down. Like, it really put the onus on teachers. So it's, like, did it motivate them? Or are you just like like a bully? It did motivate me in the way that I run if I'm being chased. Right. Or it did motivate me to fudge the data on my district assessments. You know what I mean? Motivation's a tricky thing. Yeah. So this was not the basket of worms that I was planning on opening, but I find it interesting, so I want to tell you all about it. So they're talking about, like, research between multiple choice test and short answer, like, open-ended question test. And this is what I find really, really crazy. So when they did a study, they found that both formats can show learning very effectively. Um, They're just different, but they found that all students do not do equally on those types of tests. So girls tend to do less well than boys and perform 
Girls tend to do less well than boys and perform better on questions with open-ended answers, according to a 2018 Stanford study, which found that test format alone accounts for 25% of the gender difference in performance on both reading and math. Researchers hypothesized that one explanation for the gender difference on high-stakes tests is risk aversion, meaning the girls tend to guess less. Uh. Right? This is adding a layer that, like, I wasn't even really thinking about. Girls perform better on standardized tests that have open-ended questions while boys score higher when tests include multiple choice. I found other interesting statistics. Tell us. So one of the most useful kinds of tests are the least time-consuming they found. Quick, easy practice quizzes on recently taught content. Tests can be especially beneficial if they're given frequently and provide near-immediate feedback to help students improve. This retrieval practice can be as simple as asking students to write down two to four facts from the prior day or giving them a brief quiz on a previous lesson. Retrieval practice works because it helps students retain information in a way better than simply studying the material, according to research. I had heard this because the part of your brain that remembers is a different part that retrieves. So you should study by doing practice questions because your retrieve muscle is working. While reviewing concepts that can help students become more familiar with the topic, the information is quickly forgotten without active learning strategies like frequent quizzes. But to reduce anxiety and stereotype threat, the fear of conforming to a negative stereotype that one group belongs to, retrieval type practice tests need to be low stakes and administered up to three times to be most effective. Timing also matters. They found that students are able to do fine on high stakes assessments if they take them shortly after they study. But a week or more after studying, they retain much less information and will do worse on major assessments, especially if they've had no practice tests. So this is my other beef, is a lot of states do not create readily available practice tests. It's up to the teacher to make those, and they end up being kind of different, because obviously two different people made it. Because a 2006 study found that students who had a brief retrieval test before the high-stakes test remembered 60% more. And in 2009, they did a study that eighth graders who took a practice test halfway through the year did 10% better than the kids who didn't take a practice test. And a lot of states will only release two to three questions a year. My God, they're so annoying. And as someone who recently switched states, U.S. history in one state is not the same as U.S. history in another state. The way they word things, the verbiage they use, the question types they use are so, so, so different. Like in Florida, every test I gave was like A, B, C, D, multiple choice. In my new state, some of them are like drop down and fill in the blank. And like they're just really different. Mm-hmm. Standardized testing that we know has the ramifications that it does for schools and teachers and communities and all of that. I don't understand why people or how people get so greedy and gross about it. It's nasty. Because like if you want to be greedy and gross – Like, work for, like, a weapons company. Like, get out of the education system. Is it too early for me to talk about home values and property price? No, it's never too early. Let's talk about it. It's one of those things that was, like, so obvious, but also I had never really thought about that standardized testing is literally directly tied to home values and prices. Because when buyers are looking up where to 
move, they're going to, if they have kids or they want kids, they're going to look up the school district and they're going to look at the schools. And there's a grade tied to those schools on great schools or whatever you use. And some states even officially give you a grade. Great schools is just like vibes. The state of Florida will literally, they write a school report card and you can look it up. Yeah. And like these schools, they're graded on the standardized test results. So then the rich people will move into the affluent school areas where they're seeing, oh my gosh, like that's a really good school. Well, it's just... And it's like, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes! Because then the rich people move to the good school and then the good school does even better because those kids mm-hmm. have more resources and probably mm-hmm. more parental involvement because generally rich people have more free time, I've noticed. Mm-hmm. And then that school gets even better. So then more rich people move there and then those people provide more resources and that school just keeps getting better and better and better. And then the school without the rich people just keeps doing worse and worse. And as it starts doing worse, more people move. The people that can afford to move move. Mm -hmm. And lest we forget that if we get into all the things that make up wealth, generational wealth, opportunities that people are given, who gets the most wealth? Who has the most opportunities historically? It's white people. So these schools are also being less and less diverse. There's segregation that naturally occurs because of this, because there's district and property lines literally carve neighborhoods out around racial and socioeconomic zones to the point where like you're just segregating people. Because it goes back to redlining, how a lot of counties were drawn Mm -hmm. and a lot of land was zoned like right after Mm -hmm. um, segregation ended, Mm -hmm. where they were like, ooh, we got to remix racism. How are we going to remix it? And so what they started doing is certain zones would be designated as red zones where they wouldn't give loans for mortgages. So then like property value started declining there. And then like you said, red zones would be like communities of color, communities that were lower in socioeconomic status. And even though like those exact lines are not the school system lines, those lines get used for some projects who gets used for these things. And then some of them are county lines. So they are the school lines. And just those lines from the 1950s and 60s are still lining pretty hard. Yes, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I was just going to bring up the court case. Hang on a second. Let me get it for you. The Supreme Court. We should be on it. I think the Supreme Court needs us. Write us in for Supreme Court (laughs) in 2024. Oh, wait. We don't get to elect one of the most important positions in the government. Isn't that And y'all must have forgotten when George Washington said having a till death term is weird. And that's why he left after eight years. Maybe we should have listened to that. So weird. Till death is crazy. Crazy. We should probably cut out. I would have left it in. I'm glad you said that because that would have stayed. I'm just thinking about having to say that in an interrogation room. And it would be like, because they do kind of take that one serious now. Okay, so Milliken versus Bradley, the reason it was a big deal is because it was talking about desegregation. What it dealt with was the busing of public school students across district lines to desegregate the schools. Isn't this what Joe Biden hated in the 90s? There's a really famous video of him in Congress being like, no buses, do not bus these children. When he was running in the primaries, he debated Kamala Harris. I'm shocked they're friendly now because she, in the debates, she was like, well, you said this thing about busing and it thankfully still passed. And Kamala Harris 
Harris was basically calling Joe Biden out because Kamala Harris was a kid who experienced the busing and she said it was really good for her. I know different people have had different experience. Joe Biden helped give America the language that is still used to oppose school integration today. Looks like Sleepy Joe was awake on that day. 1975 Senate hearing, the Milliken versus Bradley case was 1974. So I was wrong. It's not the 90s. It was in the 70s. That's crazy that our current U.S. president, right after this court case, was like, I'm not into it. (laughs) So, well, this ruling was important because it allowed segregation if it was not considered an explicit policy, quote unquote, of each school district. They're like, if you do it on the low, ain't no problem. You just can't do it on the high. This court case said that school systems are not responsible for desegregation across district lines unless it could be shown that they had each deliberately engaged in a policy of segregation. AKA, if you say, we did not say that, you interpreted that how you wanted to, that was allowed. They said if you say it in a real whisper, it's fine. Yeah. They said, just don't say it loud. It gets uncomfy when people say it loud. So schools were quote unquote desegregated, but they were not. They were continuing to be segregated. These school districts, their zoning lines by and large have not changed. So boundaries that were maintained just allowed these affluent suburbs to benefit from tons of policies. I mean, policies are like little snowballs. It starts out with just one thing, but then it ends up being... When I was a toddler, my mom picked the top three schools that performed the highest on standardized testing, went and visited all of them, and that's how she picked. That's a very normal way for a parent to pick a school. Yeah. Or just a it's, school. It's really the only information that's made public that you have. Right. Like, there's not a ton of other information you can go on. Now you have things like great schools. But this is also in the 90s. And great schools is really not even that different. Great schools is not the most accurate guy in the world. And if you're a parent that has never worked in a school, you're going to trust things like the report card that says this is an A school. The report card from your state's Department of Education. Like, like, why would you think anything would be wrong with that? Right. Going back to the companies, they just perpetuate it every day. All these standardized tests show is who has the most resource and, like, who has the tutoring, who has the, like, help at home, who can get their ass to school in the first place. Because if you have to work a job and you're in high school, like, you're not going to be able to maybe get to school if you're working late. If you're taking care of a little sibling, like, there's thing after thing after thing that people need to think about. They did a study. This is straight from the College Board. This is a study they did on themselves because you can report your income when you take the SAT. And it found that there is a very, very, very strong correlation between both reading and math scores and parental income. So the average test score of a child whose parents earn less than $20,000 a year is 434. For a child whose parents earn more than $200,000 a year, it is over 100 points higher at 563. And very similar numbers in math. For parents earning less than $20,000 a year, their child's average score was 457. And for parents earning over $200,000 a year, their child's average score was 579. I know this to be exactly true because I'm going to tell you a story I've probably told before. So back when I took the SAT, it was on the 2400 scale, just to give you reference for these numbers. I took the SAT. I got like an 1100 something. That's really fucking bad. Just to let everyone know. I have no concept. I don't know. Well, let me rephrase. Let me not insult anybody's score. That score was not aligned to what the expectations were for me 
and was not anywhere close to get me into any of the universities I was applying to and was a lot worse than everybody was expecting. So that created a bit of a rift. And I think it is below average, which was surprising for everyone. Let me tell you what my parents did. They paid a man $100 an hour to torture me with SAT tutoring, $100 an hour for months. This man probably made a couple grand off of this, and my score went up almost a thousand points. I almost doubled my score. Holy shit. Because of that tutor. And that tutor charges that because he's the best. And he makes a full-time income off of just SAT tutoring and provides for a family with four children off just SAT tutoring. And he takes the SAT every single year to keep himself sharp. Because anyone can sign up. Fun fact for you. I had no Great idea. Great punishment for a bet. Like, if you're betting with someone, the loser should have to take the SAT because <laughs> anyone can sign up. And I'm being so serious That's right now. That's a good now. idea. Because it's a college entrance exam. So any adults that want to go back to college, they legally have to open it to them. That's part of why it's on Saturdays. That makes sense. But, oh, my God, that's a lot of points. That score was looking good after him. So, yeah. And my parents bought that shit. If I had just gotten the little book and tried to teach myself, I probably would have gone up. But there's no way my score would have doubled without us paying this man. He also won Jeopardy and takes the SAT every single year and gets a perfect score every single time. He said the last time he didn't get a perfect score on the SAT, he was a minor. Holy shit. I was like, you're insane. But The best thing that ever came out of COVID was the SAT not having as much weight as it once did. And some schools kept it that way. A lot of schools went back and they still want the scores, but I think the way that they do it now is a really good way to do it. I've seen a lot of schools do, you can submit it if you want to, but you don't have to, which I think is good because like everybody has different strengths and some people are really good at standardized tests and that is a skill. So like if, if you want to show that off, man include it. If we're going to go into the socioeconomic of it all, if you know the word gerrymander, gerrymandering is when a area is divided into political units or districts. So it's often divided up to give advantages to a certain political group. It's like, we'll put all the Republicans here. We'll put all the Democrats here. Yeah. So they make like a very wonky looking district that anyone with eyes would look at it and be like, what the fuck? But they've like selectly gone and even beyond neighborhoods, sometimes it's specific streets to get enough of one political party into an area so that they can tip it and vote that zone red or blue or purple or whatever. All very sneaky, sneaky. So they do the exact same thing with school district boundary lines. Exact same thing. Absolutely perfect. No notes. Right? Of course they do. What happens is like low-income families are priced out of schools that are in districts that don't have affordable housing options, which as we know, that's like a huge thing right now. So one way that we can like get around this educational gerrymandering is open enrollment, but it's also an issue because we're grading the schools. So if you're having open enrollment, it's just going to kind of perpetuate the same problem. It also opens a transportation issue because then it becomes mm-hmm. people can only go to a faraway school if they have a parent with the free time to transport. And like I said, generally rich people have more free time. Yeah. And then people will be like, okay, well, let's do school vouchers. And then it's like, no, let's not do that one either. So it's... Because I saw something that said in one state... of people that got vouchers, it was like a new thing that year. 97% of the people that got it, their child was already enrolled in private school before. 
And they had just been paying for it before. Yeah, it's very (laughs) difficult because it's like all the proposed solutions to these things have other issues with them because it's these standardized tests are so woven into the way that our schools operate. They They really really are. are. And like capitalism so woven into it too that even even a proposed solution that would help is still going to be like within the umbrella of capitalism. So it's still not going to be perfect. Yeah. So I hope you gained class consciousness from this. Um, The only... (laughs) (laughs) we could really talk i mean i'm not kidding like this could be like a five episode series of like every different i'll be doing standardized testing for five days it'll be like the 12 days of christmas but it really is i mean there's so many different things how do you just pick one everything happens so much standardized testing happens so much 100 and 12 times in their educational career to be exact isn't that that is a crazy number but i mean it makes uh, yeah let me divide that by 13 how many yeah is i was that just gonna ask you per year that is an average of 8.6 per year that sounds about right sounds about right to me because my kids for my class take five and that's just for my class so i mean if if you i think i'm trying to think of a way that people can get involved to help but like it's so difficult i mean just i, I think just having this information on your radar is helpful because it's like you can go into mm-hmm. discussions about how district lines are drawn, how home prices are affected by the school districts. Like you can go into all these conversations and when you hear lawmakers talking about things like this, you can be like, oh, well, I have this additional context in the back of my mind, you know? And just from a more like logistics perspective, the people who decide these standardized tests, it's not the federal government, it's state department of educations. And that is under the office of the governor usually. Sometimes the Secretary of Education is an elected position. Usually it's appointed by the governor. So if you're the type of person that's like into calling your representatives and things like that, and if you're the type of person that like follows politics and all that, these are good questions to be asking people that are running in elections, especially for either Secretary of Education or for governor. And if a lot of people advocate for that from like a voter perspective, that's how we can start to see governors shift. So this is actually my new plan. I came up with how we're going to fix it. You're welcome. We need to make standardized standardized testing like the sexy issue of the election. Yeah. Like we we need all the parents being like, are you going to cut down on standardized testing? Like we need y'all to turn into single issue voters on standardized testing. Because it really reaches, it has like tentacles into so many other things. And I think it's it's really not something we ask people who are running for governor. Education is really not something we see people, gas prices, taxes, people talk about a lot of stuff, but I don't see people talking about education at gubernatorial debates and events. So we'll start asking them those questions. We really should. And oh, last thing, talk about redistricting. Like when you hear people talking about gerrymandering or redistricting or redlining, like let your little ears go perk. Because I think if we're looking at education and like the way that it is a driver of upward mobility and like education is liberatory and we're really like believing in that and we really want to invest in public schools well we need to make sure that kids can get to the best public school possible regardless of where they live or their whatever circumstance so think about that too i know i like have been on a redistricting kick lately but it really does matter because if we give a shit about segregation like you have to give a shit about how our neighborhoods are broken up because they were literally after board versus brown of education lines were drawn so that they could literally continue seg- segregating and it has been maintained to this day and it affects everything yeah. so it really does 
Like, That's my soapbox and I'm done, but... Ugh. Segregation never ended. It never fucking ended, guys. And nobody's talking about it. And I'm sick of it. I don't it. know if you heard the news yet, but never ended. This has been another episode of Teacher Quit Talk. And as a final sentiment, if you feel that your child is taking too many standardized tests, please don't yell at their teacher or principal. There's just quite literally nothing they can do about they it. They don't want to fucking do yell at your governor. Yell at your lawmakers as usual. Bye, Toulouse.